Well, take your Bible, if you brought it with you this morning, if you didn't, raise your hand. We'll share a copy of God's Word with you, and turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, and that's almost to the very end of your Bible, not very far. 1 Peter, chapter 4, and if you wouldn't mind, grab this little note page out of your bulletin. If you haven't already done so, that will be of some help along the way. 1 Peter, chapter 4. I see some of you with pages turning and others have your iPad and you're moving around. We're ready to go. First Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, it reads like this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And we all say, Amen. And amen. And Holy Spirit, since you wrote this, who better than you to open our eyes, to understand it, and apply it to our lives? Amen and amen. Well, we are fast closing in on the end of summer. Some of you would say it's already done with school starting. But September is just around the corner. And so nearing summer's end also means that we are near the end of our study series that we embarked on way back at the beginning of summer. This series that we've been sharing together from week to week uh, has, has been a series looking at many of the New Testament's one another commands. We have this morning to look at another of those, and then next Sunday will be uh, our wrap-up to this particular series, and we'll be on to new things. By then, we will have looked at no less than 17 of the one another commands that are in the scriptures and in the New Testament. On the back side of that little note page that you have, we have listed some 40 of these one another injunctions from God to his church, 40 actions that that we are to commit ourselves to as we do life together in Jesus' church because they significantly impact the quality of our relationships with each other and they point people to Jesus, most importantly, when we are doing these consistently and doing them well. A church that is earnestly desiring to create an atmosphere of one anotherism as opposed to individualism is going to stand out. It's going to be a church that's conspicuous and unusual and different, and it's going to be attractive because this is not how relationships look in a fallen world. We want to be people who, we want to be people who live out Jesus in such a way that others see him. One anotherism is part of what we want to be breathing and doing in the life of our church family. That's been the goal of this series from the outset. Now, so far, we have looked at 15 of the one another's on this little note page that is in front of you. Today, we add the 16th, and it is nested into this passage that we just read out of 1 Peter 4, where in verse 9 we read, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, someone might say, Really, Tim? 
of the 25 other possible one another's on my note page, this is the one that you have chosen for us to focus on? Show hospitality to one another? Really? And I know this is how you're thinking because it's exactly what Lisa asked me this week. And this was exactly her response. Really? This one? Yes, this one. Because it has huge implications for us, not only personally, but also for us as a church. And it goes in directions that I suspect many of us are not thinking about when we read this injunction to show hospitality to one another. I think you might be surprised today by this one another. Most of us have probably heard of the term hospitality industry. Have you heard that term before? Yeah? It's not an uncommon expression, especially in our day. What do you do for a living? Well, I work in the hospitality industry. And when we hear that, we immediately deduce, at least in some general kind of a way, what that is meant, what is meant by that when that person says that. This person is perhaps vocationally connected to motels or hotels or or resorts, somehow connected with lodging or maybe restaurants and food service or perhaps various forms of travel and tourism, cruise lines, airlines, or or maybe involved in some way with, with uh, uh, special event planning like conventions or weddings and that sort of thing. All of this falls under the heading of the hospitality industry, and it is big, big business. I went online, was just curious enough to go online, and I discovered that the hospitality industry is a $4 trillion a year enterprise just in the United States. Not billion, $4 trillion in revenue generated in 2013. It's a big deal. I found, uh, as I was searching for that, a definition as well. The hospitality industry is one that is primarily focused on customer satisfaction. It is the business of helping people to feel safe, welcome, relaxed, satisfied, and enjoying themselves. You may be providing people with travel, accommodations, meals, entertainment, tours, or something associated with these, but it's all about customer service and providing the best experience possible for your customers. Leave them talking about your service, your accommodations, your food, your amenities. It's all about being perfect and doing it better than your competitors. Now, that is what 21st century American culture has done with the word hospitality. And my guess is that no matter how subtle, this take on hospitality trickles down to us and influences how we think about this word when we hear it. Provide a great experience for your guests. That's hospitality. And even if that's not where we go when we hear this word, brothers and sisters, uh, and, and we were to, to ask you right this moment to off the cuff, without any, without any time to think about it, give us a definition of hospitality, your definition might not be too far removed from good old Webster's definition to offer a pleasant and sustained environment for people or a person. To offer a pleasant and sustained environment for people or for a person. That's hospitality. 
When we think of hospitality and someone who is hospitable, we're likely to think in terms of people who are great hosts, great hostesses, fantastic at entertaining. They have friends over to their house all the time. They're super friendly. They're outgoing. They create a fun atmosphere for a bunch of their buds to hang out with them. And and there's usually going to be food, and the food is going to be good, right? Lots of laughter. Getting people to leave will be kind of hard because they're so good at hospitality, right? That's what we think. In fact, in the church, we sometimes hear of a certain woman described as having the gift of what? Hospitality, of course. Why? Because she's a great cook. And she's always having church friends over to her house and putting on a great spread. And, and every week there's going to be church folks at such and such a couple's home and, and they're barbecuing and they're playing games. And, and they are a fantastic example of showing what? Hospitality. Is that what you think? Is that what we think? I think that's where we go. Now, brothers and sisters, as cool and fun and special and important as this is, when we think about uh, a, a church family that is healthy and it does life together, and this is all part of that, this is not biblical hospitality. What we have just described is biblical fellowship. They're very different. It's time to take back this word from our secular culture, from the hospitality industry, and from well-intentioned but not very accurate notions that we may have grown up with concerning this particular word. We need to take this word back and restore it to its rightful place as a, a pivotal virtue of the Christian life and as a highly valued member of the one another collection. This is not one to pass over this morning. So what exactly then is biblical hospitality? If it's not what we've just been talking about, what is it? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, 1 Peter 4.9. Well, we're going to get to that in a moment. We'll answer that question in just a moment. But as we always strive to do, we want to first set verse 9 of 1 Peter 4 into a context. I know I beat this drum every week. I apologize for that. But we don't want to yank this verse out of, out of the Bible and just make it stand alone because it's not alone, is it? It's part of something else. It's part of something larger than itself. And a good student of the Word of God will always be mindful of the context, always be sensitive to, to chase down context and not just yank verses out of their context because that's how you get in trouble. So Peter is writing, and we'll just set the context now. Peter is writing, and we know this from the very first verse of his letter, 1 Peter 1, 1. We know that Peter is writing to Christians, both Jews and non-Jews, who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus in the first century. They are, because of this persecution, being scattered all over the Mediterranean world. In fact, if you look at 1, 1 of 1 Peter, he's writing to exiles of the dispersion. That's the term for this persecution. Exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this, this letter has a wide throw in verse 1 of chapter 1. And now in, verse, in chapter 4, you go to verse 12, he writes these words, kind of, kind of piggybacking off of this thought. Dear friends, 
Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. (laughs) In other words, this is what all who love Jesus and are living for him can expect from time to time, painful trials for your faith. In the first century world of Peter's day, that meant persecution, harassment, prejudice, ill treatment, being homeless, possibly jobless, not welcomed, or it could mean even worse, being beaten or imprisoned or even killed. And so Peter writes this letter to these brothers and sisters, and his intent is to encourage them and to call them to stand their ground. Keep on going hard after Jesus. Do not give up on him, though the the trials that you're experiencing are extremely painful. And so as his letter unfolds, he gets to the point here in chapter 4 where he wants to encourage these, these weary followers of Jesus by reminding them that the return of Jesus from heaven back to earth could happen at any moment. And he does that in verse 7 of chapter 4, doesn't he? The end of all things is at hand, he says. And that's exactly what he means. He's talking about the return of Jesus. Jesus said he's coming back, and that could be at any second. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? We should believe that because that's what's taught in God's word. And when you are experiencing the kind of, of intense persecution these Christians were experiencing, that would be comforting news, wouldn't it? That would be good to know. Jesus returned. At any moment, all right, come Lord Jesus. We call this whole thought of Jesus returning the blessed hope of the believer, don't we? You bet. So Peter then uses this encouraging truth about Jesus' imminent return to challenge these Christians to take stock of how they are presently living in the light of the any at any moment possibility that Jesus could come back. When Jesus comes, how will he find me living? That's exactly where Peter's at. And that is always a good question to be asking, isn't it? Don't you think? In light of the the, at any moment return of Jesus, that truth, how am I living my life? Am I ready to meet him if he came right this second? That's the thought. I should be. And so what the Holy Spirit does here uh, through Peter's pen is to, in effect, give us in verses 7 through 11, several, well, we'll just call them markers, spiritual markers, markers that, markers that will indicate that we are spiritually ready should Jesus come back today. And in this little section, there are no less than five of these markers that will reveal our readiness to see Jesus. So are you with me up to this point? Context. All right. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus might come today. Therefore, in light of this fantastic possibility, be, first of all, self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The first spiritual marker, Peter says, is that you will be thinking soundly. You will be thinking rationally. Your thoughts will be grounded in the truth of God's word that you already have. You will not be easily shaken when the pressure of persecution and painful trials come because you are thinking soundly. You are, your mind is rooted in the word of God and you are self-controlled in that thinking. And that will lead to your prayers being effective. And so that's the second marker. The first one is that you're a sound thinker. 
rooted with your thoughts in God's Word. The second spiritual marker, you have a vital prayer life. Clear thinkers. Biblical thinkers are powerful prayers, right? Sure. And these Christians definitely need a vibrant working prayer life given the challenges that they're facing. If they don't have that, they're in deep weeds. So it's, it's, obvious, that that, it's obvious to us that that would be a spiritual marker. The third marker is a sincere love for other believers. He mentions that in verse 8. Above all, keep what? Keep what? Loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And this probably didn't get by you when I read this the first time at the opening. There are three one another's in this section, aren't there? In, in verse 8, verse 9, and again in verse 10, reminding us of a truth that we have just been pounding away on week after week after week, that, that the Christian life is a life lived in community, right? It's a one another thing that we do here at Idlewild Bible. We're not lone rangers. We are members of one another. What one of us does affects all of us. One anotherism, it's not just a catchy phrase. It's it's a non-negotiable must-have for any church that's going to make a difference where it is. Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly, the third marker. Above all. This is the great commandment of Jesus, is it not? Sure it is. Love God, love others. Jesus said that the one virtue that would let the world know that you belong to Jesus would be what? Your love. Your love for him and your love for each other. John 13, 34. And we love one another from the heart since this love covers a multitude of sins, Peter says. Now, he may have meant by this that love for each other would give us a thick and forgiving skin so that we don't have to take offense every time someone doesn't do it the way we want it to, want them to do it. We love them in spite of the fact that they, they hurt us sometimes. Or it might be that Peter was thinking that when we love each other earnestly, we care enough to call each other back from the edge of a temptation and, and thus we prevent sin from happening in each other's lives because we love each other and we care about one another. We don't want to watch each other walk off the cliff. However, Paul, however Peter meant this, and he probably meant both of these ideas, having a thick skin and calling each other back from sin and temptation. Love is this third spiritual marker of one who is ready to see the coming Jesus. Then comes the fourth spiritual marker. And which one is that? Hospitality. We're going to jump over that for just a second. What's the fifth marker? You bet. You bet. Peter will say, hey, are we using the spiritual gifts that God by his Holy Spirit gave to each one of us the day that we asked Jesus to be our Lord and our Savior? Every believer in this room, everyone who loves the Lord Jesus, the day that you crossed over from death to life through faith in Jesus God, by his Holy Spirit, gave you at least one, perhaps more than one, but at least one spiritual gift for the purpose of enabling you to minister to and for his church. You all have a gift. I have a gift. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The gifts of the Holy Spirit can be broadly broken down into the, to these two larger categories, those who speak and those who serve the body. 
knowing Jesus might come back today, am I investing this gift that God has given to me into the life of my church that I call home? Is my gift blessing and benefiting God's people? Am I using it? And, and, and brothers and sisters, do you think this is a big deal to God? This is a huge deal to him. He didn't give you this gift so you could put it in your pocket and let everybody else use their gifts for you. Quite frankly, it's why the F in our LIFE acronym exists, right? What is our LIFE acronym? L-I-F-E. Loving God together, investing in each other. F, finding a place to serve. And the E, enlarging God's kingdom. You guys just nailed that. That was awesome. Am I using my God-given gift? Am I finding a place to serve? Why? Well, Peter continues, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we say amen. Five spiritual markers that will shed some light on whether I am a come Lord Jesus right now I'm ready kind of a Christian. We get it? All right. What are those five markers again? Mind, will, emotions, grounded in the truth, God's truth, the word of God, an alive, vibrant, working prayer life, loving others authentically, earnestly, and using my special, unique to me, spiritual gift for the kingdom cause. Those are four of those markers. What's the fifth marker again? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Do these things and be ready to meet Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, given this context, the followers of Jesus taking broadside volleys for their faith by, from the world, displaced and desperate, homeless, jobless, on the move, given the seriousness of that, and then given the the weightiness of these other four markers. Do we really think that Peter has in mind here with the fifth marker that in light of the imminent potential return of Jesus, we better make sure we're putting on a good time for our friends. That we, are, we better be setting out fabulous meals for one another. That we'd be hitting home runs when it comes to social entertainment. That we are constantly having our friends over and we're creating this oasis of fun and camaraderie and warm fellowship. Be ready for the Jesus return. Do you really think that's what this fifth marker is about? Thank you. I don't think so either. In fact, I know this is not what Peter or the Holy Spirit have in mind, especially when we look into the actual word that Peter chooses here for hospitality. On your note page, and we'll put it up on the screen as well, the word hospitality comes from a Greek word pronounced philizenos. You can give that a try, philizenos. Yeah, philizenos is actually a, a, a compound word meaning uh, that it's a Greek word that has been created by squeezing two other Greek words together to make one new word. 
And so philosenos is, is the result of taking the word phileo, meaning to love with a friendly affection. Think of, think of the word Philadelphia. What, is, what does that mean? Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? Phileo, love. Um, love in, a, in, the, in that brotherly, that brotherly kind of a love, that friendly kind of love. It's not the highest form of love. That's agape, phileo, and then that is squeezed together with the word xenos. And what does the word xenos mean in Greek? It means a stranger, somebody that you don't know. Now you put those two words together, and philoxenos, hospitality, means. To have a friendly affection for, a love for the stranger. The stranger. Peter's saying that one of the defining spiritual markers of our lives is evidenced by our readiness to open the door of our hearts to those who we don't know, who are strangers to us, literally. They're not our friends. They're not our prayer group companions. They're not our life group buddies. They're not our pew partners. They are strangers. We have an affectionate readiness to respond to someone that we don't know and especially to those fellow brothers in the faith, that we, brothers and sisters in the faith that we do not know yet. We bring them in and we share our life with them we make them welcome. We meet their needs, food, shelter, clothing, friendship, community, whatever, whatever that might mean. We show hospitality to the stranger, to one another. Jesus will say in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do... They may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those who are strangers to you, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He could have said, show what? Hospitality. Lovingly friendly, affectionately respond to the stranger. And Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, your friends and your family and your church family, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He could have said, show hospitality love the stranger now you're in first peter four keep your finger tucked in here if you would like but would you run back to the left in your bible with me until you get into the book of romans romans chapter 12 and would you chase down verse 9 in that passage as well romans 12 9 in my ESV Bible this morning the the bold section description over this particular group of verses reads Marks of the true Christian. Markers of the true Christian. Notice how Peter's markers are mirrored here almost as if the Holy Spirit were the author of both of these passages. (laughs) 
Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Who said that? Peter said that, right? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Who said that? Peter said that. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Who said that? Peter said that. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Who said that? Peter said that. Contribute to the needs of the saints. In other words, care for your friends, those that you know, your brothers and your sisters, and seek to show hospitality. Who said that? Peter said that. Seek to show hospitality. Have a kindly affection and a love for those that you don't know. The stranger, be they in your church or outside of your church. Think with me for just a moment about the earliest days of the formation of the church in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the church in its very beginnings did this one another really well. How do we know that? Well, Luke says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Brothers and sisters, what is implied in that last phrase? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What does that imply? That implies that strangers are coming in, right? Hospitality. Friendly affection for and love for the stranger. And so in the early stages of the church's development, there was this this, this dynamic of a stranger. Ah, a stranger. Welcome. Come in. Be a part Meet a real risen Jesus. That person becomes a believer. Oh, another stranger. Come in. Welcome. Be a part. Meet a real risen Jesus. And they become a Christian. And this was happening over and over and over again. And as a result, the church grew. Is this hospitality thing a big deal? You bet. It's part of how Jesus grows his church. So let me ask this. Has the passage of time and the geographical distances and the crossing of cultural boundaries that has taken place since those Acts chapter 2 days somehow taken first century hospitality and turned it into a 21st century shadow of itself? Has that happened? I think it has happened. And I think it's happened in the church. If we go back to 1 Peter 4 and verse 9, I so appreciate something that we read there that we don't read in Romans 12, 13. 12, 13 said, seek to show hospitality. But Peter, interestingly enough, says, show hospitality to one another. How? <laughs> Without grumbling. Yeah. I'm glad that two-little-word exhortation is added because it lets us know that even in the first century there must have been, for the Christians of that time, some pushback when it comes to doing this one another well. Or why else would you add 
that little clarifier on the end. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, my guess would be, since Peter does not elaborate on what the grumbling or the complaining was centered on, that it is probably centered pretty much on the same kinds of issues and reservations that we might feel today as we think about befriending the stranger and showing friendly affection towards someone that we don't know. And so I just ask myself, what are some of the universal timeless hindrances to true hospitality? Some of the things that, that, that would keep us from doing this one another really well. And so I'm really just speaking from my own, my own place. Could it be that one of those things that would keep us from biblical hospitality is a fear of rejection? No one likes to think that their efforts to be friendly to a stranger might be what? Rejected. Nobody likes rejection. We all hate rejection, and so we try to protect ourselves from it. But hospitality, by its very definition, means that I must risk going to someone and seeking to be friendly. I'm I'm risking putting myself out there with the possibility, knowing that I could be rejected. Fear of a stranger's rejection keeps some of us perhaps from being hospitable. Would you agree? Yeah, we don't want that. Perhaps it's a fear of, 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 of the difference between us and them. I suspect we all struggle with this to some degree. We see a stranger and instantly we notice that they're not our, in our age group. <laughs> they're not. And they don't dress like we do. Or, or their ethnic background is different than ours. And, 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 and then they have an accent that I don't have and... And we probably don't know the same people and they're walking and I'm driving and they have a suitcase and I own a house and and they're single and and I'm married and, and I don't see any kids and I've got kids. All these filters are firing as we encounter a stranger. And the difference, the differences can make us very uncomfortable and consequently make us what? Inhospitable. The flip side of this is the possibility of the fear of being judged. While our filters are firing and we're taking in this stranger and doing the inventory, what do you suppose the person on the other side is doing? <laughs> They're doing exactly the same thing to you, right? And they're evaluating you. And then if we push, push through our own filters and seek to be hospitable, we're wondering if, if we're favorably going to meet their expectations. What will they think of me and my efforts? Did I do it right? Did I do enough? Did they, did they like what I said? Did they like what I tried to do? And again, we don't like those kinds of nagging thoughts and questions, and so it's just a lot of hassle, and it's just a lot easier not to go there at all. And speaking of hassle, there is the issue of inconvenience, right, that comes with hospitality. Usually the stranger shows up when we already have other plans, Murphy's Law, right? Strangers don't show up when we're standing around with our hands in our pockets, absolutely with a blank slate saying, what am I going to do with all this time? Showing hospitality takes time. It takes energy. It it can take money. It, It can lead to further commitments for how long, we don't know. Loving the stranger will be inconvenient, and for that reason, we may avoid being hospitable. And speaking of this money thing, showing hospitality may 
it may cost us materially, financially, to show love to a stranger. And for that, that could be a serious hindrance. Hospitality could cost me. Now, this could also expose a, a very serious heart matter. It could betray a flawed view of our possessions. If we own all of our stuff and all of our stuff really does belong to us and we are the owners of it, then that's going to definitely influence what I do with my stuff, right? And who I share it with. Family, yes. Friends, yes. Strangers, hmm. Brothers and sisters, who owns you and who owns your stuff? (laughs) Yes. Your God does, not you. Whatever we have, we have because it's been loaned to us, right? It's not ours. And so our readiness to respond to the stranger in our midst will be affected by our take on our stuff. Is it his or is it mine? Am I just sharing what's his or is it mine? Is it to be shared or is it to be guarded? The spiritual marker of hospitality is going to press us. And I don't want to be insensitive to one other hindrance possibly to hospitality. That's the fear of being vulnerable. We do live in a dangerous world, don't we? There are evil people who prey on the kindnesses of others. The Holy Spirit is not asking us to discard wisdom or or shelf discernment or caution when we do this hospitality thing. And there are definitely issues for women when it comes to responding to strangers, especially to men. And those must not be ignored. Those are, those are legitimate concerns. We all must be smart, even as we are seeking to be hospitable. But the admonition stands, does it not? Show hospitality without grumbling. And what I think I hear Peter saying is this. Don't set up your world so neatly, so securely, so comfortably that you fail to manifest the spiritual marker of hospitality in your life. I think that's what he's saying. Let yours be an open door, an open heart, not just to those who you know and trust and feel good about, but open it up to those you do not know. Do it smartly, but do it. Because that's what Jesus did. Agreed? That's what Jesus did. And he's our first and best example. If we stop for a moment and we just think and reflect upon uh, Jesus in light of the, the true meaning of hospitality, think about this for a moment with me. He blew through every one of these hindrances that we've exposed, right? Uh, rejection. He came into our world knowing rejection would be his experience, right? I mean, that's what John 1 tells us, that he came to his own, but his own did not did What? They didn't receive him. But he still came. What about differences? (laughs) Good night. He is the sinless God. He is perfection who comes into what? Our sinfulness. Could there be any more difference? But he still comes. The friend of sinners, he's called. Judged? Do you think Jesus was judged? Every day he was judged by the religious leaders. They were maligning him and and they were treating him in the most cruel way. But he loved the stranger anyway. How about inconvenient? (laughs) 
People so hounded Jesus, so chased him down that he rarely had time alone to be alone with his God. He had to get up early before the sun came up just to pray. Cost? You think it cost Jesus to reach out to a stranger? 2 Corinthians 8 9, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. And when it comes to the issue of being vulnerable, Jesus was for us vulnerable unto death, even death on a cross. Church family, when we when we resolve individually and as a church family to push past these hindrances and we seriously ask the Holy Spirit to enlarge our hospitality heart, our love for the stranger, the one that we don't know, something ordinary can be turned into something extraordinary. And my proof text for that is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to what? To strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You familiar with this verse? <laughs> yeah. I don't know many Christians who've been Christians very long who don't know about this verse. It's kind of a out there verse, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of an X-Files kind of a, a verse. The, the, the writer is alluding to what happened to Abraham in Genesis 18, and he, he took in some travelers who carried a message from God, but they looked like ordinary men, but they were actually angels. And, and so the writer is building on that. But there is, a, there is a larger truth here for you and me. In verse 2, I believe it's saying that, that something quite ordinary is in the arena of hospitality and reaching out to a stranger can turn into something super significant. We're not unfamiliar with the ordinary becoming extraordinary. Every time we celebrate communion, what happens? A little, bit, a little piece of bread and a little bit of juice do what? They become the catalyst for taking us into a sacred, deep, grateful place of worship, don't they? The ordinary becomes extraordinary. Baptism. Somebody goes under the water and comes up out of the water. That happens all the time in a pool. But at a baptism, that very ordinary thing becomes what? That becomes a sermon without words about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we open our hearts to the stranger in our midst, brothers and sisters, we put out our hand in a warm greeting, we welcome, we pursue, we take interest, we take the time to listen, we inquire about a need, we, we invite the, and share a meal, uh, we, we give a ride, we, we do whatever we need to do. All very ordinary activities. We do not know where that's going to go or where it will end. We could be playing hosts to heavenly messengers. The ordinary could become unbelievably extraordinary. Let me end with this. Jesus says this in Matthew 25. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it, say it, to me. If we ever, ever needed incentive or added motivation to do this one another, let it be this motivation. When we show hospitality to the stranger, anyone we do not know, we do it for Jesus. We do it to Jesus. Is that good enough for us? Let's pray together. Oh, High and holy God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. May it not be just words for us today. May we do what we have talked about. May we watch you turn the ordinary into the extraordinary. May we love the stranger well. For your glory we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.